is Georgia getting a preview of what it looks like to charge a former president? These four horrible, radical left Democrat investigations of your all-time favorite president, me, is just a continuation of the most disgusting witch hunt in the history of our country. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Coming up on today's show, we have so much to talk about. First, leading off with the fallout of Trump's reported indictment. I guess he's he's expecting to be indicted, which is a bizarre way to phrase it, but we'll talk all about that and what it means for the Georgia case. Also, the latest developments in Atlanta's pursuit of the Democratic National Convention next year, and how a hospital rift is causing all sorts of turmoil in the Georgia legislature. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location at Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. And don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Bruce Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. When you prepare your Georgia income tax return, please consider adding a few dollars to Line 33 to support the Georgia Cancer Research Fund. Managed by Georgia Core. these funds go to researchers hard at work at Georgia's research institutions and medical schools, finding new ways to fight cancer. They're developing new treatments and new tools for diagnosis, all to save lives. It's easy to do. Just look for Line 33. More information is available at georgiacancerinfo.org. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Okay, let's kick it right off with Donald Trump taking to his social media platform, Truth Social, on Monday to issue a rebuttal to potential charges in New York. Whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid or the unselect committee hoax, the perfect Georgia phone call, it was absolutely perfect, or the stormy horse Daniels extortion plot, they're all sick. And it's fake news. Our enemies are desperate to stop us because they know that we are the only ones who can stop them. And they know it very strongly. And they're looking at the polls where not me, but we are up by so much. They can't even believe it. We won twice and now we've got to win a third time. Patricia, we just heard Donald Trump, of course, invoke the Georgia case, but he's mostly talking about uh, charges that could be filed. As of this taping, they have not yet been filed, um, but they could be filed against him involving a uh, cash payout violation with Stormy Daniels, the former porn star. Um, but look, I get the feeling that we're sort of going through this dry run of what we could face in Georgia if Fonnie Willis does decide to pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump here in Atlanta. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We have been hearing about this Stormy Daniels case for years. We know also that there is a current DOJ special counsel investigating Trump 
on everything from um, having confidential records at Mar-a-Lago to potentially other crimes that that may be related to. So this has all been swirling around together. The Fulton County case is the one that's been pulled out by legal experts as the one that is the most potentially damaging to Donald Trump. But in the meantime, after seven years, uh, the district attorney in Manhattan does look like he is um, poised to take action of some sort. We don't know what it is because um, it's only Donald Trump who says that he's about to get arrested. He was supposed to be arrested on Tuesday. Tuesday has come and just about gone. He's not arrested yet. Um, However, he is proactively putting this out into the ether. And so I think we are all under the assumption that whatever Donald Trump does this in this moment, whatever, um, even when whatever law enforcement and lawyers are doing in Manhattan at this moment, those are all a preview of what is likely to happen here. If Fonnie Willis gets closer and closer to a potential indictment, expect this much and more fake news plus plus coming from Donald Trump, the enemies of the state. It's Fonnie Willis. We know now this is exactly how he's going to react. It won't be sort of according to historical precedent when people's lawyers tell them, do not talk about pending legal action. Well, that's out the window. So we know that's not what's going to happen. We've also seen in Manhattan, law enforcement officials erecting stanchions, crowd control measures, a lot of concern about potential protests. I think all of this, um, you're exactly right, it really does feel like a dry run for what we we could be seeing here in Fulton County. And we know that you know, legal convention is not a sort of thrown out the window already in Georgia because we already have a pre-buttle of the legal indictment, you know, of the, indi- of the potential indictment from the, uh, the Donald Trump lawyers here in Georgia, where they've already issued um, a legal motion basically calling for the entire grand jury investigation to be thrown out the window because of what they say are a number of, of procedural legal issues involving that investigation, ranging from interviews with the grand jurors to the conduct of Fonnie Willis, the district attorney, and to the conduct of the judge, Robert McBurney. And uh, speaking of those grand jurors, please, please listen to the special episode of AJC's Breakdown podcast, which includes more details about their extraordinary interview with five of those special grand jurors. Um, But Patricia, these grand jurors are sort of at the heart of uh, the pushback we're hearing from pro-Trump forces saying that the very fact that they're they're divulging new details about this investigation is grounds for uh, a removal from prosecution. Yeah, well, it certainly feels like uh, the Trump legal team is doing what most uh, defense attorneys do when it feels like something is coming. They just start to push back quickly, um, push back for a potential delay and push back. Uh, look, just throw anything against a wall, see what sticks. So let's get rid of the all of the grand jury findings. Let's get rid of Fonnie Willis and let's get rid of the judge. They want every piece, every element of this case to be thrown out. Um, That is obviously highly, highly unlikely. Um, But I do also think in terms of a national audience, there is an important difference between the role and the conduct of a special grand jury in Georgia versus a federal grand jury. So the idea that these jurors are talking, some of them um, naming themselves, as Emily Coors did, uh, to... um, 
quite a splashy debut for, from her, which I think really did damage um, the sort of the external view of the case. And then all the way to these five other grand jurors who've spoken with Bill Rankin and Tamar Hellerman with the AJC, really in an attempt to, it seemed like they were trying to sort of restore the reputation of the special grand jury. They said that they felt like some of those answers, some of the coverage made it seem like the special grand jury was not a serious effort. They said it certainly was a serious effort. So I think the Trump legal team will have probably not a lot of luck with all of these challenges that they're issuing, but they want to take the chance if there is any there there, if there's any piece of this that they can have thrown out. And you could even point to something like uh, Fonnie Willis having to recuse herself or being removed from the Burt Jones portion of this case. Um, if you you can't win a challenge unless you bring a challenge. I think most defense attorneys will tell you that. So they're going to bring a challenge to just about the entire case, even before it's gotten started. And look, back to how Georgia could be a preview of what's going on and other avenues. In the courtroom, it could be a preview because we're already seeing the pushback in, in legal terms, but also... There's been calls for protests. There's already been political pressure on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to bar Donald Trump's extradition to New York. We're already seeing vows from House Republicans to investigate the prosecutor, the district attorney in Manhattan. We could be seeing, and we already are seeing some signs of this in Georgia, but we could really be seeing this compounded in Georgia because legal experts agree that the case against Trump potentially that could be brought here in, in Georgia is much more serious than the case that could be brought in Manhattan. Yeah. And I think that if you look at the elements of the case here in Georgia, it all seems to follow a logical path toward Donald Trump. Um, legal experts who have looked at the case in New York City said that this is, first of all, he's looking at a misdemeanor charge of potential bookkeeping fraud. Um, there may be a way to bump that up to a felony charge based on potential campaign finance violations. But it just doesn't feel like it's rising to the same level that the Fonnie Willis investigation is. The uh, allegations in New York really center on Donald Trump, Stormy Daniels, and Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's attorney. When you look at the Georgia case, this is Donald Trump, his associates, and really every voter in Georgia. It feels like the magnitude here is just exponentially larger. And it feels like the ramifications were exponentially larger based on what Donald Trump and his associates, the actions that they did take. And so it really feels like the legal exposure is there as well. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are not only the host of this podcast, but we're also two of the authors 
of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And boy, has it been a busy week in the Jolt. You can get the Jolt in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, we're joined by a special guest, a friend of the podcast, Atlanta City Hall reporter Riley Bunch. Riley, thanks for joining us for this next segment. Thanks for having me. Well, Riley, we wanted to talk to you about a, a story you broke earlier this week involving a city council resolution, which really sets the stage for the DNC in Atlanta. It doesn't mean that Atlanta has nabbed that showcase political event that we've been talking about on this show for months now. But it does mean that it could be inching closer to the city. And it does mean that city officials are already making preparations just in case President Biden and his allies announce that the Democratic National Convention is coming to Atlanta. Absolutely. We had a very interesting and unexpected piece of legislation at the city council meeting this week. Um, If you follow and watch Atlanta City Council, it's on Mondays every two weeks and it's hours and hours long. And you got to sit through the whole thing to get to the very end. There's a very part at the end where they can introduce legislation that's not on the agenda and they call it for immediate consideration. Um, So if you sat through the full city council meeting this week, we had a resolution that was introduced by um, Councilwoman Overstreet, and which she labeled as time sensitive. You know, she took the stand and said, I don't usually do this. I don't introduce legislation for immediate consideration that often, but this is, quote, time sensitive. And it was a resolution that basically outlined that um, the city of Atlanta, the mayor's office, could enter into financial agreements and contracts with DNC organizers with um, the Atlanta Fulton Recreation Authority and MARTA if, keyword is if, we get the DNC. So it was really setting the stage. Um, And it was fun because they were having technical issues. So we had to do a voice vote and Antonio Lewis, um, he, you know, he proclaimed go DNC baby as he put in his vote. So it was an exciting moment in city council this week. And here's what Atlanta City Councilman Marcy Collier Overstreet said about the vote. By hosting the conference of such magnitude in the city, both the city and the state of Georgia will benefit from the influx of public and private sector revenue, significant investments in the public safety infrastructure, as well as distinction associated with such an event. Riley, in our jolt um, item on Tuesday morning, I also linked out to... Lynn Sweet's column. She's one of my very good friends who is a columnist with the Chicago Sun-Times. And by reading her column, I realized that Atlanta is not the only city that thinks it's about to get the DNC for 2024. She said that uh, she was very confident that J.B. Pritzker's offer to essentially cover the entire cost to the DNC himself, because he's a billionaire, to make sure that they emerge from this debt-free has been 
really the the closing argument that they needed to hear. And her final line was that uh, Chicago has everything that New York could offer, except for the Statue of Liberty and garbage in the streets. <laughs> so that is such a Chicago way to cut down um, to cut down New York City. She didn't even mention Atlanta in her column, which I have brought Ouch. to her attention. Um, but how does the competition look right now? The mayor has been bullish on this for a very long time. But how does it look inside City Hall? And what are you hearing right now? Absolutely. And I think that everyone that's vying for the DNC right now is going to say they're confident, even if they're not confident, because they want people to think they're going to get it. Um, and they want their competition to be on their toes, right? And I think what Atlanta has going for them is just the unique history. And that is really what bid um, organizers, um, key political figures are trying to push is that um, Atlanta is kind of they want to send this message that Atlanta is the future of the Democratic Party in its diversity, um, in its um, democratic enthusiasm. And I think that that is something that Atlanta has to offer uniquely in this position right now. I would say that in the resolution, um, it offers some different funding channels, right? So in August of last year, to kind of compete against Chicago's, we'll flip the whole bill, <laughs> which is insane. But last year, city council um, approved half a million dollars to go toward the proposal and the bid and organizing and things like that. And then also in this resolution that was passed um, on Monday, was a provision that allows excess hotel motel taxes to be kind of used as a credit line um, to flip some of the bill for Atlanta, um, but it has to be paid back. So they're maneuvering their dollars around as well. Um, we might not be covering the whole thing, but there's some there's some maneuvering going on. And Riley, there's some just brass tax going on right now too, because you, you, the clock is ticking. There's, it's roughly 16 months. We don't know exactly when the convention would be held, but we're talking about 16, 15, 17 months, not long, a year and a half-ish until the convention. Organizers don't want to fall behind on the, the work that needs to be done, on lining up vendors, developing contracts uh, to deal with 50,000 visitors who will pack the city. We're talking tens of thousands of delegates, thousands of reporters, thousands of other folks who might come. And you know, when you look back at other Democratic conventions, Republicans usually announce their conventions even earlier than Democrats. But if you look back at the last few Democratic national conventions, at this stage in the ballgame, they've, they've already selected their host cities. In cases um, of uh, Charlotte and in Philadelphia, they were, they were selected the February of the year before. And Milwaukee was selected in early March of the year before. We're already in late March and the DNC still hasn't selected its host cities. So I think all the cities that are still in the running, New York, Chicago, and Atlanta, have to be thinking of this, of the logistics. And, and, and maybe they will end up following Atlanta's lead in terms of trying to develop some of these contracts now. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, any steps they can take proactively is going to help them on the back end if we do get it. I mean, we reported some of the numbers, um, I think, last month with just staggering numbers of hotel rooms, how many people they're expecting. I'm curious about how they're going to handle security um, with such a high profile event with so many high profile politicians. And anything they can do now is just going to help them later if they get it right. Um, so moving these kinds of resolutions through city council, even though it sounds weird, you know, if we get the DNC, if this happens, it's going to help them in the long run. 
And Riley, what do you know about what's happening inside the mayor's office? Are they continuing to reach out to the White House, continuing to reach out to the DNC? Is there any selling left to do? You know, I think that there will be selling up until the last day that they make the decision. Everybody is going to be constantly lobbying and reaching out to their allies in the White House. I don't think they're going to stop until they're told no. And Riley, before we let you go, one more question. You had this fantastic piece a few days ago comparing the preparations to now to back in 1988. You talked to officials who were very involved back in 88 and are still in the political world today. What was one of your big takeaways from that? I think it's interesting that even though the during the 88 convention, we were Democrat controlled, right? And this was what the, the piece was about, was how Democrats were in the legislature in Atlanta, and we, we were all united and excited to welcome the Democratic Party here. But bid organizers this year are kind of leaning on the fact that we are, like I said earlier, kind of the future of the Democratic Party. And I think it's interesting, even though we have this um, contrast of this big Democratic convention being held, if we get it in a Republican controlled state, um, just the recent election wins that Georgia has helped the federal level Democrats in the Senate and the White House, you know, that's what's propping us up right now. And I think that's a really interesting difference. Yeah, I was going through some old clips of the 88 convention as well. And one of the biggest problems in retrospect uh, with the convention was the size of the Omni. There were lots and lots of complaints about the Omni, about delegates being stuck on the outside, just trying to get inside. Of course, that was before there were cell phones. So nobody even knew what was happening on the inside. Um, So that's obviously changed. We have some major, major large venues that have come along since then. And we've also handled the 1990s six Olympics since then. Are any of those a part of the conversation or have those been part of the pitch from the Atlanta delegation? Absolutely. Those are key. I think that we've spent, you know, the last over three decades building our hospitality industry and our tourism industry and, you know, perfecting our ability to host these big events like this. And the fact that we have World Cup games coming, that only makes our argument stronger, right? You know, Atlanta is saying, hey, we know how to do this and we can do it. And if we do it, it's going to be great. You know, it is fascinating, Patricia and Riley. I went back and read a lot of the coverage of the coverage of the 1988 um, DNC, and there was magazine articles written about how it was covered because we're talking about maybe 5,000 reporters coming for the DNC in 2024. Back then, it was more like 15,000. <laughs> there was a lot of reporters from local markets that no longer do cover national news that were covering national news back then. And yeah, there were folks who were locked out of the Omni who were upset. There were folks who weren't getting into the, the, the classiest parties and all that. Uh, there's a lot that going on outside of the political world at these conventions. There's parties, there's bashes, there's corporate gatherings, there's luncheons, there's fundraisers. That's a huge part of it. They're going to raise, you know, the, whoever the presidential nominee is, we're assuming it's going to be President Biden, but we'll raise a ton of money at these events. So there's so much that goes into it. And there's such a huge logistical challenge too to pull it all off. Absolutely. I think there was a clip um, that I linked to in my story about 88, where Andrew Young is addressing a crowded room of reporters. And he says, you know, we know how to handle 10,000 visitors, but we don't know how to handle 10,000 reporters. So give us a little grace. (laughs) That was his message. So I'm sure it'll be similar this year. I love that quote. 
Well, Riley, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Politically Georgia Podcast. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, guys. Okay, Patricia, let's now talk about an interesting, unique battle. There's always something at the Capitol. And in years past, there's been these big clashes over abortion and guns and religious liberty or election laws, you name it. This year, one of the biggest most divisive battles, and we've we've talked about a few, but one of the biggest ones that we haven't really talked that much about involves hospital regulations. It sounds boring, but stay with me because this really could shape the rest of the legislative session and really the beginning of Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones's tenure. Because right now, we have really sharp battle lines being drawn over what what is called certificate of need programs. That's basically regulations that 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 determine whether hospitals, new hospitals can open or expand. Um, these, this legislation that Burt Jones backs, Senate Bill 99, has divided some of Georgia's most powerful politicians and is already threatening to shake up the final days of the legislative session. Burt Jones is maybe the foremost supporter of this Senate Bill 99, which allows construction of new hospitals in counties with fewer than 50,000 people without going through this regulatory process called Certificate of Need. One of the reasons he wants it is because there is a pending proposal in Butts County, in middle Georgia, the the county that he is from, to build a new 100-bed hospital. His father, Bill Jones, is one of the foremost supporters of that proposal. So critics are saying there is a conflict of interest um, with Burt Jones's push for this bill. Large hospital systems do by and large, not all of them, but many of them do not like any sort of changes to the Certificate of Need program because they think it it could jeopardize their existing facilities and could lead to hiring wars and and for private facilities, private hospitals that come in and try to cherry pick affluent patients. Um, but Burt Jones and other supporters of this overhaul say that it blocks more quality, accessible healthcare for smaller rural communities. And right now, there is a vicious tug of war going on. Um, the AJC reported on Tuesday that the Senate could end up blocking a mental health package that was part of the late Speaker David Ralston's legacy. Um, that could end up getting blocked if the standoff continues. Um, we also know now that Governor Brian Kemp and his administration is quietly trying to intervene behind the scenes. The governor's top aide, Trey Kilpatrick, met with House lawmakers, House Republican lawmakers, in a closed-door caucus meeting on Tuesday, along with Sonny Perdue, who is the uh, head of the Board of Regents, and they discussed the problems that could arise if this legislation passes. Most notably, and this is complicated, but most notably, um, Wellstar, the giant healthcare system, opposes... um, this change. Wellstar is also in active negotiations uh, to po- potentially take over Augusta University's healthcare system and the Medical College of Georgia out in Augusta. The state really wants this to happen, and the state is worried that if this bill passes, Wellstar will walk away from that negotiation. So there's a lot, comp- there's a lot tied up into this, but really the bottom line is we could see a, a, a even more divisive rift between Republicans over this legislation in the final days of the session. Yes. If we have lost any listeners, stay tuned, because Greg just went through all of the details, which are so important. Um, What I see here are two different issues. The first issue is the certificate of need 
program. That is a program, as you said, that dates to the 1970s. It's designed to make sure that hospitals, when they're going into rural Georgia, go where they're most needed. So if it's going in next door to another hospital, um, it's not most needed there. Maybe it is most needed 60 miles away. So the state has decided to have the certificate of need program to make sure that the resources are being dispersed across rural Georgia. Now, there's a major problem in rural Georgia with healthcare. There is a shortage of healthcare in rural Georgia. And the certificate of need program we've heard in some cases is very, very important to have this lengthy drawn out conversation about all of the consequences for a new hospital coming into a community. But in other cases, it feels like a lot of red tape for a situation that should be pretty easy to decide. So does the certificate of need program need a conversation? It feels like Yes. Is, is this the solution? Well, this solution was proposed. Um, this version of the solution was presented to House members on this committee when they sat down at their desks. It was a brand new substitute um, from Senator Greg Dolezal. Members of the committee said, wow, so I have actually never seen this legislation before. And he said, well, it makes four, it makes, uh, four out of five changes recommended, and I'll take you through the changes quickly. Don't overthink it. It's really not that complicated. <laughs> to which a number of hospitals stood up and said, um, excuse me, it's extremely complicated. So that's the certificate of need conversation. And Patricia, I think he called it a tweak, right? He just said it was uh, he a, called it it a, a tweak. tweak. This is a tweak with four out of five changes. You don't know what they are, but trust me, they're great. You'll love them when you pass them. Um, so in House members, of course, on the committee said, I'm feeling a little rushed right now. I need some time. So they did not vote on this. Um, we thought there could be a vote in committee. And those House members said, look, we just need to spend some more time with this legislation. So this is a two-year session. Hold your horses. We'll we'll talk to you in a second. So that's the certificate of need conversation. The separate conversation is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and how this has happened and why this has happened. It's perfectly reasonable that a lieutenant governor from a rural area would like to see rural health care addressed. Yes. However, um, in none of these public hearings has Bill Jones, his father's direct financial interest, been discussed. Does he own the property that the hospital is going on? Does he own a healthcare company that could be building that hospital? While there have been public hearings, and Bill Jones has even testified at a hearing last year, it's not abundantly clear what this looks like in terms of the family gens bottom line financially. Mm -hmm. um, Bill Jones is incredibly successful, looks to be um, getting involved in real estate and healthcare at this very site of where the hospital could be proposed. That's a really important part of this conversation because the lieutenant governor is also threatening to bottle up much of the legislation in the General Assembly if this bill isn't passed that feels very strange. It certainly has caught members of the House off guard. It's caught members of the governor's office off guard. They knew this bill was coming, but they did not know that this would be how it was dealt with by the lieutenant governor's office. And so we're going to have to see how this plays out. But I do think in this case, full disclosure, more information on the issues with the certificate of need, on the issues in rural Georgia, and on the specific interests of the lieutenant governor's father, more information is much, much better in this conversation. And right now, it does not feel like we have all the information. Yeah, what we're talking about is uh, what they what they call under the Capitol, under the Gold Dome, a hostage situation. 
And yes. it, so, it sounds it sounds bad. <laughs> that but, is the technical issue here. Yeah, but usually lawmakers will hold legislation hostage to be used in a trade for the passage of other legislation. Right now, we know that the Senate and that Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who is the president of that chamber, really wants this legislation passed. It already passed in the Senate. And they look like they will be holding this landmark mental health legislation that was the legacy of the late Speaker of the House, David Ralston, uh, the second phase of this legislation, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll look like they'll be holding hostage. They'll be tying it up until this underlying hospital bill passes. So it's very complicated. And then you add in the Wellstar part of it to the mix. It's even more complicated. But here's, here's what we know about the Burt Jones situation, what he says publicly. Um, and we have no reason not to believe him, is that he wants more quality health care access in parts of rural Georgia, right? Smaller counties where it's hard to, to, to access elite healthcare. Um, and there is a pr- proposal for a uh, private hospital with 100 beds, um, which is about four times bigger than the, than the small aging hospital already in Butts County to be built. What we also know is that Jones's father, Bill Jones, has advocated for this new hospital and it could be built on a 250 or so acre of land that he assembled for roughly $30 million near a giant new development that's being built along I-75. Although renderings provided by county officials show the hospital campus could be built on parcels owned by Bill Jones's firm, the lieutenant governor's office says the land hasn't been designated yet for final approval and it's not yet finalized. So they're saying this this is not a done deal, Um, but there are conflict of interest issues that that Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is going to have to work through as this debate continues. Yes. Um, Also, let's put in there, this is a conversation about rural Georgia. The projections for Butts County are to be rural for not too much longer. The reason they're putting that development in there is because it is really poised for explosive growth. That might argue actually for more healthcare, another hospital down there. But that's why the Certificate of Need program exists, is to take a deep dive into the needs of an area, especially a changing area, and then approve or deny hospitals as a part of that. Now, the Wellstar conversation is really, really important because um, they own that neighboring hospital. There are actually um, multiple smaller facilities all around there. There's a hospital in the next county over. Um, so there, there is health care in the area. But we do know that people who live outside of Atlanta often feel the need to come to um, Atlanta, either to Emory or to Piedmont to get major services um, delivered or taken care of. So the, I mean, rural healthcare is its own really important conversation. Um, but the reason the Certificate of Need program exists is for an instance, just like this. So one could argue, why don't you just get a Certificate of Need? That should take care of this. This is an attempt to get around the Certificate of Need. In the meantime, well, in the meantime Wellstar is... Um, a really important part of this effort to have more residents in rural areas, more doctors trained to go into rural areas through um, through the Augusta Medical University over there. And so to anger Augusta, I'm sorry, to anger Wellstar at the same time you're doing this needs to be really, we need to understand what all the stakes are here. Is it worth it to lose that residency program 
um, over this issue? Is it being done for one hospital or multiple hospitals? That was a part of the conversation. There was a specific question asked actually by Mark Newton during the hearing, the House hearing on Tuesday to say, I'm just confused. Is this being done for one hospital or for something statewide? And that is um, that is a whole other conversation to go to to follow as well. Yeah, and the measure would be statewide. Um, and look, from the state's perspective, this deal with between Wellstar and Augusta University is is they see this as essential because um, I, I've heard from state officials they see this um, this Wellstar deal with Augusta University as being essential because uh, they they want a, tr- a a trusted medical provider to take over that hospital so that it's not under the aegis of the Board of Regents anymore. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I know in terms of uh, rural communities and what we've heard from Bill Jones and what we've heard from others is basically that, you know, folks who live in that part of, of, of Georgia, you know, are being stuck in two hours of traffic when they need to get certain medical services that they want to be provided in their backyards. And we hear that from all over the state. The certificate of need program is not just a, you know, sort of snap of the fingers. We've heard from county commissioners and others who say it's a years, years long process that, that racks up a tremendous amount of legal fees and you have to go through all sorts of bureaucracy. So it is not a, a simple process to navigate. Um, but look, you also have big hospital firms and other supporters of the current regime who say it's not simple, but it's necessary because if you start having for-profit hospitals pop up um, all over in areas, if it's unregulated, then it's going to drive the not-for-profit hospitals out of the business. And those are the, the those are the care providers that often help the underserved communities, areas with lower income residents, more marginalized residents, disproportionately minority areas. Um, and some of these hospitals could potentially open up without even ER services or other basic care uh, and just cater towards wealthy folks. So there's a lot of, there's a lot there, <laughs> but this is why this debate has literally raged for years, for, for more than a decade in Georgia. You know, it, this system was created in 1970s, but it's been controversial almost from the get-go and it's not an easy fix. And it's really interesting that this is one of the main pieces of legislation that Burt Jones has decided to champion this because he did not pick an easy bill <laughs> to put over the finish line. Well, that's exactly right. And we have been looking this entire session for clues in terms of um, letting us know what kind of lieutenant governor is Burt Jones going to be? What kind of House Speaker is John Burns going to be. These are each of those gentlemen's first sessions leading their chambers. The choices they make now are really setting the tone and setting the course for their terms um, going forward. And so um, is Burt Jones looking out for the full state of Georgia? Is he looking out for rural health care? Is his father somehow involved in this picture? The choices that he makes, I think, over the next week and a half, what he decides to do with this bill, what he decides to disclose about the situation um, involving his family, what happens with this legislation, and does other legislation get to go forward if other members of the House and Senate feel like they need more time to consider this legislation? That's all going to be a really important um, conversation as we evaluate uh, the leadership of the lieutenant governor this year. That is our attempt to make hospital regulations <laughs> sexy under the cold dome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is all about all the time we have for today's show. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, day or night, 
leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is on a well-deserved vacation. So producer Jay Black is filling in and he is standing by for your calls. Actually, um, Shane is still standing by um, because he has the keys to the hotline. Oh, God. So even though he's dodged the interns this week, um, he still has to give them the keys to get the phone calls. So Shane still has to do some work from his uh, remote location while he's so, on vacation. So well, that's just good management. It's good management. So Jay Black was the predecessor to Shaney B. Um, and this is like a flashback for you because now Jay Black got off and got himself a promotion. So he has his own podcast and he's in charge of all the podcasts at the AJC. But has this been like a... a a, a scary flashback to your previous role or maybe a high point for you maybe point. this has been yeah. the high point for you jay i've missed you guys so it's uh, <laughs> it's it's nice to see you again and uh and and we, we've done uh, quite a bit of work since the last time i was here running the show podcast is uh going great numbers are fantastic but it's nice to be back and we love Shane Eby. We miss you, Jay Black. We were very upset when you said, don't worry, we've got a new guy coming on. And we're like, what? But then, you know what? You got someone um, in your in your mold, Jay Black, total pro. And uh, exactly. th- this show is better, and it's allowed us to build up all of our other shows. So uh, if you have not, you, obviously we know a lot about Breakdown. we got a lot of great sports shows. Had a special Braves Report podcast out today uh, with uh, to answer all of Greg Bluestein's questions about the shortstop situation. So believe. check them all out. That was the stunner to me. RC is our, our starting shortstop now. Justin Toscano's of... got all your answers on the Braves oh. Report podcast. What happened to Von Grissom? He got uh, demoted. He's, he's so going to be going out. What? what? I know. I know. I, I don't. I still don't quite understand. RC about a 241 last year. I'm not. I'm not the biggest fan. Okay. But <laughs> back to the... <laughs> time to go. Bye, everybody. Yes. Well. With that all said, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. We'll also occasionally talk about Braves and Georgia football. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.